Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, uh, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, um, and today we'll be speaking uh, with Adam Phillips about his most recent publication, uh, Becoming Freud. Um, Adam, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, we're very pleased to have you here. Um, it's been a uh, very exciting year waiting for this book to come out. Uh, Leo Bersani gave me your phone number a year ago, and I held on to it until, <laughs> until this book came out um, so that I could make the strategic phone call, because um, uh, I think this is a really ground, groundbreaking book. Um, so to begin with the first question, um, I think for many people, and perhaps people of a certain generation, your book, your biography um, of Freud, will be their entree into Freud and his life. Um, what do you hope that they might take away from encountering um, your ideas about him? Well, I think... In a way, I think of writing as having a sort of, you know, unpredictable effect in the sense of I don't have consciously um, an intention or anything programmatic about what I would want people to think of Freud, if you see what I mean. Sure. But I suppose, but, but inevitably, because there's more, you know, there's more to it than my conscious wishes here. And I think that I certainly would want to convey, first of all, as clearly as I could, Freud's own doubts about biography, which seems to me to be very interesting. Mm-hmm. I also want to, to, to create a sense in which Freud's ideas come from a place and a person located in time. So that these are not, I'm not saying anybody thinks this, but these are not universal truths about human nature. These are very specifically located ideas and thoughts and feelings and sentences that come out of a specific world. So that, that's one bit. The other bit of it is to, I think it would be a good idea to drop the idea of great men mm. and acknowledge the fact that everybody's homemade and everybody is ordinary. It doesn't mean people are capable of doing very remarkable things. But I want to convey a sense that Freud came as we all do, from a specific family and made what he could of what he partly inherited and so on. Um, But I wanted somehow to offset the myth of the isolated genius. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to set Freud fairly and squarely in a world of friends and family. And, you know, I stress in the book, for example, that he had six children. Well, six children is a lot of children, not maybe by contemporary middle-class standards. Um... I mean, not by the then contemporary middle class standards, but nevertheless, Freud was growing up with a lot of children. And Freud was having ideas about family life and development when he had these very young children. And so it seems to me that's of crucial significance, as is the woman he married. So it's as though I wanted to sort of, in the best sense, return Freud to his ordinariness, not with a view to diminishing him, but simply to making him seem realer. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that um, you succeed. Uh, you succeed in that, in um, particularly in the way in which we come to learn about um, Freud's surround. And I think you do stress those six children, this, their stages of development, his inter, his interaction um, in the household as much as you can you can grasp it or get a sense of it, and the impact of that on him. But you also, um, this book is uh, is written. Um, for the Yale University Jewish Live series. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, what, if anything, would have been different if the book had been written for um, the popular press or for a series not particularly focused on Judaism? Would there have been a difference? Of- yes, I think, I think that, well, in the first instance, I mean, I would never have written a book mm-hmm. if it hadn't been in the Jewish Live series mm-hmm. because I had, I had real doubts about doing it anyway. But the Jewish, the fact it was placed in a Jewish live series, um, made it, it freed me in a way to think about um, the history of those Middle European Jews in that period of the nineteenth and twentieth century. And I very much wanted to find out more about that. Just straightforwardly, read more books about that. 
that was an enticement in itself. Um, to learn to learn about something, A, that I didn't know very much about, and B, that related to my own family history. So that made me curious. Uh, also, I think Freud's views about religion are very interesting. And that it seemed to me inevitable that um, Freud would have come out of a long transgenerational history of more or less religiously observant Jews, and yet produces, of course, a significant Enlightenment critique of religion. Of course, there's already, by the time he writes, uh, a significant tradition of Enlightenment critiques of, of um, religion. Right. But Freud's going to bring something else to this, something new to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that was a very powerful element in in wanting to write the book. I mean, I, I, it seems to me, A, that nobody needs another biography for it. There are very good ones, actually. Um, and the thing about the Jewish lives was, first of all, they were Jewish lives. And secondarily, they were short books mm-hmm. in the sense that they didn't suffer from a kind of modern prejudice about biography, which is the biography is incredibly long because there's no principle selection so everything has to be included right right but you make a very um specific decision to um end uh the biography um i believe what in 1906 or 19 yeah yeah and you have there's a quote um of yours you say a biography like a symptom fixes a person in a story about themselves um so can you talk to us about uh because this is a biography your decision to end um your book with Freud uh, at the age of 50. Yes, it was a strange thing, and it actually evolved in the writing of the book. It wasn't something I planned to do. But what I found was that as I wrote um, the end of what became the penultimate chapter, I found myself speculating about what would have happened if Freud had died in 1906. And having done that, I then realized that I'd then written the book I actually wanted to write. Mm. that the book actually had finished and that if I was to carry on now, it would be dutiful and it would be drudgery and my heart wouldn't be in it. Right. And so I think you know, it's linked to the, to the quote you just um, uh, mentioned, which is that on the one hand, I wanted to give a clear sense that Freud's life could be written in many different ways as anybody's life could be. Mm. But I also wanted people to um, imagine what psychoanalysis might have been like if Freud hadn't presided over its development beyond a certain point, and if we'd been left with the books, but very, very few of the followers. So that in a sense, psychoanalysis would have been what people made of their reading. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether it would have been better or worse, but I do know what did actually happen. And I think one of the things that actually happened in the history of psychoanalysis was that psychoanalysis was partly stifled by its institutionalization. Yes. And I think that in a way, even though of course wonderful things have happened in the development of psychoanalysis, I still think psychoanalysis is a missed opportunity. In the sense that I think it has much more of an open future than the institutions have allowed for or indeed have encouraged. Mm-hmm. And I think in a way what happened was, you know, Freud, of course, was inevitably ambivalent about his own discoveries. And it was as though one side of Freud's ambivalence was picked up at the cost of the other side. Mm. So that psychoanalysis, I think, in many ways, became extremely restrictive and cautious and anxious about a number of the most interesting and, I think, prolific things Freud had discovered. Such as? Well, I think simply the the power of sexual desire and the range of unpredictable desire in the human subject. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what Freud uses the word sex and he makes it quite clear in three essays, and I say this in the book, that, that he calls it sex, but he keeps saying, and I don't know what sex is. <laughs> and that seems to me very, very important in this. Because I think what Freud is actually, in my view, working at is he's trying to work out um, something about sociability, something about what really strongly draws people together. Mm-hmm. And and this is where I think, for example, Deleuze and Guattari in, in their Antipas book are, are very, very revealing. Because what they're effectively saying is that, that there's always a risk that desire in its range is going to become what they call overcoded. 
Yeah. As in, because we're so disturbed and excited by it, we want, we're going to want to jump to conclusions about what desire is and what it's for. Mm-hmm. And it, it's partly that's inevitable because it's part of acculturation. But the risk is that the acculturation is unduly confining. Right. And I think, you know, if you read, for example, the dream book, you have a very strong sense, I think, of Freud's awareness and description how, of how amazingly imaginative a dream is. Mm-hmm. And how actually, you know, he says, you need to spend your whole life analyzing one dream. Well, if that's true, then the range of desire and imagination in any given person is truly incredible. Yeah, I I heard I heard, you, I heard uh, you speak um, when we met briefly at uh, the White Institute, and I think somebody asked a question um, uh, regarding um, institutionalization of psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic training. And I, I guess what what comes to my mind is you spoke very passionately uh, about allowing the candidate to follow their inclinations rather than be kind of a jack of all trades, know about everything. You really encourage this idea that one could follow um, their inclination in their, in their um, uh, you know, spending their time becoming an analyst. And yes, yeah. There was something, yeah. something that yeah. seems to go back to the, the idea you have about the dream, like you could analyze one dream for the entire life, and what, what are we doing when we're demanding that the candidate do everything? Yes, exactly. I mean, in a way, it's as though it, the wrong question is asked, because the question isn't, am I doing psychoanalysis properly? Mm-hmm. The question is, what kind of person do I want to be? Right. And I think people should be using psychoanalysis to make something of their own of it, and that's a Winnicottian sense of using an object. Sure. It shouldn't be something that you um, conform to, learn the rules of the method or procedure, and then enact it. Mm-hmm. It's something you should use to dream with. It's dream stuff, not instructions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the, I think that the trainings encourage it. As a, I mean, obviously, I'm generalising here, and so this is slightly absurd. But I think the risk is always going to be that one way or another, psychoanalysis is going to be turned into an instruction manual or a toolkit, as opposed to being both those things and other things as well. No, we never case. know what somebody can make of it. Right. Right. Because there is, um, I was thinking about as I, as I read the book, um, and I read it, I read it twice, because uh, there's, it had a different effect uh, the second time. And first time I read it, you know, thinking, what do I know already about Freud? What is Adam Phillips writing about Freud? You know, kind of in this more perfunctory, um, mm. you know, looking at sort of maybe just information. And I know you're, and, and it's clear you're doing something other than just giving us facts and figures. And then I read it the second time and let it wash over me. And I thought, okay, I have a different idea now about about this book. Um, and uh, I was thinking that given your popularity, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that you, you know, are in the English-speaking world um, a, a psychoanalyst who gets out there, you know, beyond the, uh, the world of conferences and institutes. Um, and I was thinking that you have a very interesting platform um, from which to address uh, myriad cultural phenomena. And I was... I have the thought that this book is doing more than just telling us um, about the life of Freud. Uh, it's saying something about privacy, uh, about um, about knowledge, uh, about um, modernity, sexuality, immigration, Judaism. Um, would you say that there are, for lack of a better term, um, kind of multiple agendas at play here in terms of you are thinking about psychoanalysis in in the, the public sphere and uh, at and beyond? Um, yes, I mean, I think there must be, but I think in a way, it's something that, you know, you or anybody who reads the book might know more about than I do, okay. in the sense that um, I haven't set out with conscious agendas. I mean, I've set out with a conscious agenda to write a book, you know, as it were, the best book I can write. Um, and I think you're right. I think it's doing lots of things. And of course, I do say in the book that, in a way, Freud says, the question for the biography is, what are you using the biography to say? And it must be true, you know, in its own terms, that I'm using the biography to say a lot of things. But in a way, I think that as the writer of it, I feel like, I mean, in the process of writing, I want to write sentences that work for me. And and I want to, to some extent, tell a story that works, but then it's sort of handed over. 
or it can trust it to its readers who will love it or hate it or both. And and I think that there's more going on in the book than I know about. Right. Uh, and, and the book knows things that, in a sense, I don't. <laughs> uh, but I think that certainly one of the things I want to convey is that I think psychoanalysis is a really wonderful cultural invention. I think it's a really extraordinary thing. And the more I do it, and the more, well, yes, simply the more I practice it, the more remarkable it becomes to me. Mm-hmm. And so I think I want to convey the spirit of something about that. Mm-hmm. Because I think that I don't, I don't think people should be writing defenses of psychoanalysis. I think the only way to sustain psychoanalysis is to do good clinical work. Yeah. And then secondarily, I suppose to write interesting things. And I think that psychoanalysis is only for the people who love it. You know, it's psychoanalysis like ice cream. People who don't like it really hate it, and people who like it really like it. <laughs> and that's fine. I don't think anybody should be trying to persuade anybody else that psychoanalysis is a good thing. <laughs> but I do think um, if you happen to like it, you should, well, do it as well as you can clinically. That's the main thing. Secondarily, if you happen to like writing and reading, then you should write about it in the spirit in which you live, insofar as you can. Mm-hmm. And I want you to do that. Well, there is a sense in um, in reading the book. I, I found myself wondering um, what it would be like to be in the you know to be on the couch with you. Like what you know what would the what would the sort of um, experience be like? Because there is a sense, and there are, there are some people who are writing. Um, uh, you know who I've interviewed. I mean, Jameson Webster, uh, amongst them, in her book *The Life and Death of Psychoanalysis*, that gives you kind of get an experience rather than um, you don't walk away with knowledge. Um, you walk away having had uh, an experience, which is unique. I mean, in a, we read a novel, we walk away with the sense of having experienced something. But often in psychoanalytic writing, um, unfortunately, um, maybe not as common. In fact, you have there's a quote. Um, and perhaps you, I wonder if you might elaborate on it, that um, the, re- you, the quote is, the reason psychoanalytic writing is so dispiriting is because it is all written by older people. Um, and I was wondering if you could say, could say more about that. I think that's a very dense, uh, yeah. embedded, <laughs> so to speak. When you said it, I thought of the thing that Susan Sontag said, where she said that after 40, men become caricatures of themselves. <laughs> But after 40, women become a work in progress. Yeah. Um, I think there's something wonderful and true about that. Mm-hmm. It's not true of all men or all women, but it's an interesting just uh, uh, formulation something. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, I think that, the, that retrospectively, I can see that um, the, psycho, the psychic world that I came into as a young man, and I was in my really early 20s, was a world uh, of a combination of European emigres and English people who were almost all were, as I say, middle-aged or older. Mm-hmm. And it was a very hierarchical and really very um, intimidating world. I mean, intimidating partly by intention. That's to say, there was an assumption that there were people who knew about psychoanalysis and there were students. And the students were joining something akin to a cult. Right. Uh, in other words, it, you know, and, and a million people said this, but you know, here's a profession based on something to do with free speech and people saying what comes into their minds. And you train and you discover that actually nobody wants anybody to say what's going on in their minds. Right. This, this, of course, is an exaggeration, but it's a version of that. Mm-hmm. So I was very dispirited because I knew that I was really interested in psychoanalysis. I knew I wanted to be a child psychotherapist. Um, and really, I was sustained by my analysts and by my supervisors mm-hmm. and by you know one or two people who taught me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought, I think in retrospect... You chose well. Sorry? You, well, I mean, the thing is, is, it sounds like you chose well. It's interesting. <laughs> yes, I, it was a combination. I chose really well, and I was very lucky. Mm-hmm. But I think that it needs to be, or it should be, a more um, genial environment for younger people. Yeah. In other words, it should present itself as a kind of environment that the younger person might actually want to or feel something in it for them. 
mm-hmm. um, as opposed to it being a terrible sort of parody of adulthood. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, when you read about the early history of psychoanalysis, it's not that you think, God, it was wonderful and everybody was free, but clearly, because they were discovering it, they people were crazier for want of a better word. Yeah. And over time, of course, you can see there are understandable reasons to this, but over time it's become more uniform. Right. And there's been it's been a considerable cost, I think. Yes, I mean, both, both to the patients and the practitioners. Oh, absolutely. The toll, the toll that's taken, um, I think, on uh, the clinician is is enormous. And perhaps, perhaps what we've we've seen the a pendulum swing from this you know, one person to a two person to the analyst actually, um, you know, you know, it, it, confessing things to the patient. I think to myself, the way in which uh, we're being trained at times is so far away from what you say that psychoanalysis is a profession for dreamers that there's a constriction that um the analyst in in training and and afterwards endures and that eventually they you know we see in the states there's kind of a a, you know a turnabout like now i'm going to tell the patient what i'm thinking and feeling and there's a sense of like what what has your training done to you yes exactly the training has made people feel lonely yeah it's, and of course, then they want to have what they think of as more intimate conversation. And I'm, I'm sure some of them are good, but I just think that you know it should it, it should be in a sense more ordinary. Mm-hmm. People should really enjoy doing it; otherwise, there's no reason to do it. Right. And it should be done in a spirit of genuine friendliness. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about you ending the book um, uh, in 1906 because after that, things um, did get, uh, I guess, got uglier. Um, yeah. <laughs> It got yeah. uglier, and the, the freaks and the bohemians and the outsiders who, you know, were drawn um, in, uh, drawn to psychoanalysis, um, weren't, they got less freaky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, yeah, were, yeah, less yeah. Out, they were less outsiders. Um, I know I interviewed uh, Christopher Bolas, and I think in that interview he spoke um, very frankly about uh, the importance of letting young people uh, graduate more quickly and get practicing. That we yeah. should be training. I mean, not my training took, you know, it was a 10 year training, right? Um, you know, and uh, by the time I got out, I thought, well, I, you know, well, I, how old will I be? And will I still even want to do this? And, um, yeah. you know, there's so much rules and regulations about who can get in to teach, and you need to be five years out of your training in the States and most places to be allowed to teach. And, you know, when you're younger, you're at the top of your game in many respects. You're- but also, yeah, but also the assumption is that people don't know what they want. Right. Um, and that they're, you know, that there is a sort of familial model as though the there are parents and children, whereas all the so-called children are all legal adults. Right. And I mean, I agree with with um, Christopher Bullock, and I think that really training should be minimal rather than maximal, because people are perfectly capable of reading the books themselves. Yeah. They're perfectly capable of, of finding other people to read the books with and to find out where to find out about the books. Mm-hmm. What people really need is an experience of analysis that's good, that they genuinely value, right. not one that they think is quite good or they feel too ambivalent about, and they need to see supervisors that they really like right. and are inspiring and that's all you need and it should be minimal and then people should go off because the only way to learn to is by doing it <laughs> exactly actually it's it, an apprenticeship but it should be a minimal apprenticeship and then people should go off into the world and practice it you know you have i think in the book there's um uh i interviewed leo bersani uh and not, not the two of you at the same time um, on the book Intimacies. And, yeah. um, it was a great interview. Um, he's, he's terrific. And I was thinking as I read the Freud book, um, becoming uh, your, your Freud book, um, that it reminded me a little bit of, of Intimacies because in that book, you two launch um, really a thoroughgoing critique of the idea that knowledge, knowing, knowledge of the other, knowing the other's story, constitutes uh, intimate contact. And in, the, in Becoming Freud, I, I have a quote, you say, knowledge as a refuge from self-experience. You allude to, quote, the life story that exists only to obscure. Um, and I guess I was wondering, is, do you see this book as attempting to correct um, commonplace ideas about the kind of knowledge that undergoing a psychoanalysis um, uh, produces in the analysand, perhaps? 
yes. I mean, I, it, it comes, I, I definitely feel that. And it comes partly out of my own education in the Winnicottian tradition mm-hmm. and partly out of um, the kind of things that Leo Bassani and I talk about intimacy. In other words, there are lots of threads here. But I think that the, the fundamental thing is to do with the way in which knowledge is used as an estrangement technique unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the development is not the acquisition of knowledge. It's a lot of things. It doesn't mean there isn't acquisition knowledge in it, but it's not defined by the acquisition knowledge. Mm-hmm. So the kind of psychoanalysis I'm interested in is about um, the way in which people um, uh, avoid or sabotage the kind of exchanges they are intrigued by or, cu- or made curious by, mm-hmm. or that are genuinely nourishing or sustaining. Right, or pleasurable. Yeah, oh, exactly. But, but fundamentally, it's like locating where your real enjoyment is. That's the basic yep. thing. And everything comes from that. Um, and and that it's really about um, evolving a sense. I suppose two things. One is, um, you know, what is one's personal repertoire of risks and risks untaken, and why were they untaken? Mm-hmm. So that actually enabling people, not uh, not through knowledge, but partly through knowledge, to take the risks or some of the risks they fear, right. and also for people to have a sense of a repertoire of possible kinds of exchanges they might want. Mm-hmm. And that, and that fundamentally, a life is, 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 in my view, at its best, an experimental life. Right. right. And, and this, this book, in terms of the way, I mean, I think in general, in terms of how you write, um, it's clear you, uh, you, embra- you embrace that and, and are, are most at home um, with the experiment. Uh, yeah. 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 I think that that's, that's the, ex- the excitement. You do convey an excitement about not knowing quite what's next <laughs> so, yeah and that's actually true because actually we you know we don't know what we're going to be feeling and thinking five minutes time right and if you live in a scientific culture of course you are um initiated into the values of predictability mm-hmm. <clears throat> of course in some things that's extremely useful but it's not useful in all things right right and that that seems to be um uh an idea that is not very popular uh, right yeah you know and in that sense you know it, it makes it returns psychoanalysis to a more kind of counter-cultural position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that, you know, by now we could say something like the, um, the process of psychoanalysis is radical, but the, but the ends or the concepts of cure are very often banal. Right. I think uh, that, that's, a, that's, a terrific, um, that's a terrific point. Um, because there is that, uh, there, there's a sense perhaps that somehow, uh, I mean, speaking from the point of view of the states, that, you know, if psychoanalysis is not simply derided as, as ridiculous, it's also been domesticated. Yeah, yeah. It, you know what I mean? Like like an animal. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and your idea is that it's a it's not a process of domestication um, at all, uh, and that if, if knowledge is not sort of the point of the analysis um, and something else is, um, you know, if something else takes place and emerges aside from knowledge, it's almost as if you're speaking, you're speaking against a, a tide um, uh, that you're speaking against the tide, against the yeah. natural tide. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm hoping, uh, I'm hoping it could be, it could be heard. Um, I guess maybe a related question. Um, you, you write, um, you ask a great question in the book that I, I wanted to ask you. Um, you write, do psychoanalysts know what people are talking about? This Now we're back to the knowledge question, right? Do they know what people are talking about, or do they just know how to let people speak for themselves? Um, which I, you know, I thought that was, the book is full of these truisms. Like you have another one, the unconscious has no biography. I was like, man, the, the man writes in truisms. So what would, how would you respond to that? Do, do analysts know what people are talking about, or do they just know how to let people speak? Sorry, I couldn't hear the end of that. Sure. Um, it, it's just your quote. Do psychoanalysts know what people are talking about? Yeah. Or do yeah. they just know how to let people speak for themselves? What would you yeah. say? I mean, in a way, I think that question formulates the dilemma. Because I think, in a way, psychoanalysis is at its best in what it can do to enable people to speak. And I think it becomes both useful and potentially very preemptive and reactionary when it claims to know what people are talking about. 
so um, when you, you, you just said something about, about speaking, and I've been thinking a lot about speaking. Um, I, I think that you may be a little bit involved with the Chicago um, group. Uh, that's yes, I spoke to them. Yeah, yeah I've, I've been talking. I've been in conversation with them too, and. Um, I forget exactly what it's called that they're doing, but they're just setting people up in dyads, yeah. people to talk. Yeah. <laughs> and what struck me about that, I don't know if this struck you, I was like, oh, right, we have to actually reinstate talking. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting idea. And, it, of course, w one of the things interesting is that we, just as you said, we're sort of struck by this. And... And yet you'd think, well, this would be a very good cultural use of some of the things that psychoanalysis is interested in. You know, because the question is, why are people so frightened about talking to each other? You know, Frenzy said years ago, um, why can't people, why do people, why can only, people only say what comes into their minds in analysis? Why can't everybody say what's in their mind all the time? Mm -hmm. And it seems, of course, like an absurd question, and a million people would give you a million answers. Nevertheless, it is a very interesting question. Mm -hmm. You know, and in a way, what psychoanalysis, I think, is most useful about is all the ways we have of uh, not saying to ourselves what we have to say and not saying it to other people. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, there's a... You know, the, there's a very like confessional aspect, right, to to the culture. I mean, you know, reality television. In the last 20 years, it's like, let me show you me. Um, and you make a very strong case in this book that um, another great quote: "We should not be substituting the truths of our desire with trumped-up life stories, stories that we publicize." Um, and I think in that, uh, I had the sense you were trying to convey that there's something very unique that takes place. Um, in in the analytic dyad, as opposed to um, to out in in public, what what is how would you describe? Um, I don't know if, if it's really a description of the difference, but could you say more about this idea? Because we do seem to be in a culture where everyone's telling everyone everything at every every given moment. You can find out what everybody's quote unquote. Well, I think I think what's striking is that, and this is the difference I think that you may be alluding to, which is that. In the public culture where people are saying everything and know everything about each other, it's incredible how cliched and commodi commodified and repetitive it is. Yeah. Because if you took your view of human beings from, say, what we know about celebrities' private lives or from reality TV, we would think that people were amazingly limited in their imaginations right. and their actions. You know, it's a bit like if you want to understand sex by watching pornography. You think, God, these people can only do five things. <laughs> and again and again. And, and again and again and again. And there's, no, and there's so little imagination, so little elaboration in it. Mm -hmm. So that I think what you get in public is, is, uh, is a commodified person or the person as ventriloquist dummy of the culture. Mm -hmm. And what you get in situations that I think are more uh, private and safer, and therefore less full of voyeuristic thrill, is amazing, uh, amazing sort of emerging uh, elaborations of subtleties of feeling and thought. The people are much, much more interesting and complicated than they realize. <laughs> give, credit, give themselves credit for. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I... Uh, was thinking about it. It's interesting in the book. Um, I found myself sort of focused on the absence of knowledge about Freud's mother. Um, for some reason, that just I thought, wow, we really don't know a lot about his mother. However, I, I did find a book, and I don't know if you know it. Um, it's called uh, by Deborah Margolis, and it's called Freud and His Mother. Yeah. yeah. You, are you aware of this book? Yes, I am. Yeah. Okay. Any. It, that didn't seem to prove uh, a useful book for you. And, and well, what you see, it's a bit like I in the book. I deliberately avoided certain things. Mm -hmm. um, I avoided making a meal of the seduction theory question. Right. Um, I avoided making a meal of did Freud or did Freud not have an affair with his wife's sister. Uh -huh. 
I also avoided alluding to this book you mentioned, not because it, cause it's a diminishing book. I don't want to diminish the book at all. But I just, I thought there was a larger point, which was, even if we read 10 biographies of Freud's mother, we're not going to know very much about her. And we're going to know even less about her relationship with her son. Mm-hmm. Because most, thing, most of those things are not knowable in that way. See, I found from my experience as a child psychotherapist, for me, the most, possibly the most, but one of the most interesting things for me is talking to mothers about their children. It's just astoundingly interesting. Once you get over people's feeling that they're very boring when they talk about their children, <laughs> but you really need mothers to talk about their children. Now, Freud's mother is not going to be talking about her son. And I think, in a way, Freud did a good job in conveying to us that if Freud's mother can't tell us about him, then there's a limit, a very, very serious limit, to what we can infer and speculate. And I think, in a way, Freud's relationship with his mother is one of the many things that have to be consigned to oblivion and privacy and speculation. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I deliberately avoided in the book speculating about it because I don't know what my speculations would be based on. Right. Somebody could write a, you know, somebody might write a very interesting novel about it, mm-hmm. say. Now, you know, we'd have to then see what made us think this was an interesting book. But nevertheless, somebody could do that. But in the biography, I wanted to say we know almost nothing about people's relationships with their mothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's an interesting limitation on biography. Right, uh, that biography is really, um, for, for its dislike of it, uh, my senses was based on his awareness of how absolutely limited it is and that you have, the, you have sort of facts and, and, and data, so to speak, but what, is that, what does that actually deliver? Yes, exactly. What kind of story is this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to also... Uh, in, in your thinking about sexuality as sociability, um, which is really, I, I mean, the book is doing something very important also because you're trying to, you know, every, I mean, Andre Green threw the question out, like, you know, what, you know, you know where's the sexuality in, in psychoanalysis? Yeah. And yeah. Um, I think that uh, I, I really saw the book as, you know, kind of offering up another, yet another corrective um, regarding the debased uh, position of uh, sexuality within a lot of contemporary psychoanalysis. Yeah. But you you make an argument, um, uh, you, you suggest that, uh, it, that this sexuality as sociability um, may have uh, or may open a door to seeing, quote, psychoanalysis as politics, as one modern way among many others of thinking about new styles of relating and new versions of group life. Um, mm. Can you say some more about um, the interface of psychoanalysis with, uh, with the political? I'm, I'm wary of doing this only because I'm, I'm very distrustful of the grandiosity of psychoanalysts extrapolating psychoanalysis to the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean by that people haven't said very interesting things. I just mean I'm not sure I've got the capacity to do that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think just in terms of quotes you've referred to, yeah. it seems to me that sexuality is um, the craving for sociability at its most urgent. Yeah. So it's telling us something. See, I, it's a bit like thinking, well, why should people form into groups? Well, uh, or let's say, why should people make psychoanalytic institutes? Well, I, I think the only reason people should get together in psychic groups is because they crave each other's company. Right. They really enjoy each other's presence. So it seems to me, in emphasizing sexuality, Freud is at its most minimal, making us wonder, what do we want to do together? What do we really want to do together? And I don't think that's answered by saying what we really want to do together is have sex. Well, that is what we, that's also what we really want to do together. But the sexual is also a picture of something essential or urgent or powerful or passionate about sociability. And if you think how confounding sexuality is, it's a clue about how confounding sociability is. Wow. Okay, that's uh, that's very clarifying, and I, I think uh, and I think it's a really key point in the book. It seems to be made and, and remade. Um, uh, yeah, sort of, sort of, it's woven. Uh, that theme is really woven 
um, throughout. Um, so let me see. I was thinking about, um, you know, it, this book is, is going to be read in many, many different ways. However, it will be read by um, uh, an audience that's, I, I would venture a guess that it'll be, have more lay readers than professional readers. Yeah. I would, I would guess in terms of the, um, the readership, because it does, uh, it does cross over as, as many, you know, many or most of, of your books do. Um, I, I was thinking about in some psychoanalytic circles that I'm in, you know, people in the fields um, find themselves unable uh, to um, describe what psychoanalysis is. And I was thinking, okay, this, this book is going to be one of those things that kind of describes what psychoanalysis is. And we have a bit of a, there, there, some say we have a PR problem on our hands, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you, you say Freud would say it's a reputable account of the disreputable, a rational account of the irrational. Um, if I were to ask you, um, you know, this question, like how, what would you say psychoanalysis is um, in a way that was somewhat succinct? I mean, do, do you have a, do you feel you have a way uh, to to talk to talk to that? I think psychoanalysis is everything that people say about it, <laughs> and I think that it's and I think that what psychoanalysts should do is go on telling us what they think it really is, in the full knowledge that everything in psychoanalytic theory tells us that we can't say what anything really is. Mm-hmm. In other words, we go on giving our opinions of how it should be done and what it's about. And 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 there's and there are going to be competing accounts of that or collaborative accounts. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, I mean, psychoanalysis would be about um, sociability. It's about um, the pleasure, the pleasures people can get in each other's company. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's about people finding where their real enjoyment is. And it's also about people being free to be curious about just how complicated they can allow themselves to be. Mm-hmm. I think that the, um, the way in which you ally uh, psychoanalysis with pleasure, mm-hmm. uh, which is really, I think, at the heart of the book, um, how, yeah. how we attempt to derail our pleasure, how we get in the way of our pleasure, how modernity uh, thwarts our pleasure and how we attempt to you know, tolerate that, get back around to it, uh, screw it up on the way to getting back to the pleasure. I think, I think you're really onto something. Uh, mm. I, uh, and also, I think I suppose just in terms of what you said, the other thing that I think is important for me in relation to this is, is to do with kindness, is to do with um, recovering the pleasures of kindness. And our uncertainty about what kindness is, because in a way, you know, w- w- one of the questions anybody who practices psychoanalysis is faced with is, what would it be to, to be genuinely or usefully kind to this person who's suffering? Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, if anything worked, we'd all be doing it. So it's not as though there is something that works that has solved the human problem. But psychoanalysis makes a very, at its best, a very interesting and kind engagement with the difficulty of living one's life now. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to be a, 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 an honourable and pleasurable thing to do. So trying to discern really what, what, would, be, uh, what would be kindly is, is, very, is very complicated. I, uh, I know a, a, an analytic candidate who I think went to the event at White um, that was for candidates that you um, yeah. held a forum there. And she said that she uh, said something, and I'm just paraphrasing, but something like, well, you know, with a patient who says, my life is terrible, I want to die, this and that. And she said, so would it be um, something along the lines of kindly to um, say to the person, well, for Christ's sake, I don't blame you. You know, at, at- Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there, there wouldn't be an assumption that life's worth living. Right. Yeah, and that, so we wouldn't be like alcoholics and need everybody to drink. Right. We would assume that everybody, uh, well, lots of people may ha- may go through a period in their lives when they genuinely wonder whether it's worth it. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't, in fact, I think Winnicott says, you know, when somebody comes to me and says they want to kill themselves, I don't try and stop them. I just make sure they do it for a good reason. <laughs> well, I think that's right. Um, but we shouldn't, there shouldn't be a basic assumption that life is worth living. The basic assumption should be that that is a question for some people, or maybe for everybody at some point in their lives. Right. And it's a real question. 
Right. And it's un, and, and just to shut that question down is uh, not to shut everything down. It, absolutely. It's, it's not not kindly uh, at, in, in the least. And certainly yeah. uh, not and certainly not generative. Uh, yeah. it'll, it'll generate nothing. Um, I wanted to ask uh, another question. Um, given, you know, in the book, how much we learned, how much Freud hated the idea of biography. And it's it's pretty thoroughgoing, his, uh, his dislike. Um, of it, uh, what he did with you know Arnold's leg and you know throwing him off at the pass and then destroying his uh, papers mm. at the age of twenty nine, mm. I think, right? You know, destroying the artifactual. Um, so, and yet you write this biography, right? So, mm. I wanted to talk to ask you: Could you talk to us as best you can um, your thoughts about um, uh, doing? Doing to Freud what doing for well not to Freud God knows he's had a long time but doing something that um, Freud didn't want done um, and can you I mean I guess I was thinking you know what's the transference here I mean, this is this is pretty interesting given that it's at the heart of the book is the yeah. the biography yeah. critique and you're writing a biography and can you talk to that at all any any thoughts Well I think that if you um put yourself through your writing into the public realm, I think you're offering yourself up to be described and re-described. Yeah. So it seems to me, if somebody says, I don't want a biography written about me, they have every right to do that and for that to be abided by. Mm -hmm. But in the full knowledge that if you choose to put things into circulation, people are going to speculate. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to write, you know, I deliberately didn't write what I would think of as an intrusive or um, absurdly speculative biography. But I do think that Freud was both um, truthful about biography and overly defensive about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I personally love biographies. I read a lot of them. Right. I think they're sort of slightly absurd and slightly riveting. Mm-hmm. Um, but... And it seems to me very unlikely that people like us, if there is an us, are going to not be interested in the trajectory of a life or what somebody makes of their life. Right. In many ways, biography is the new, you know, secular inspirational literature. Um, given that's true, and there must be a reason why there's so much interest in biography starting in the 19th century, it's worth having ways to reflect upon it as a genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and wondering what we're doing when we're writing them and what we're doing when we're reading them and what we want from them. Right. And so in a way, it's kind of an exercise in that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the sense in the book is that you come, uh, that there's a, a certain caution um, yeah. that is, uh, that's, it's palpable, that you come up to the lip of something and then you kind of, don't push it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, in a way, it's it's the attempt to write a biography that doesn't violate anybody's privacy. Right. It's, it's sort of a, a different form. It's it's really quite a different form of, of biography. Mm. That's what mm. I which which I which I think is you know, uh, congratulations. You know, I mean, because mm. if you can create a little bit of a new form, um, you know, of, of writing. Um, yeah. Yeah. While you're doing many other things with that writing, um, it's putting it's it's putting something out there. Uh, I think also for analysts to think about how I, I thought about the case history and yeah. how we write up the case history. Yeah, and exactly. oh my God, you know they're just so awful. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. the patient was your first you know, first born in a family of five. Mother was blah blah. I know, and this is these the most interesting things in the world, and they sound like the most boring things in the world. Right. How do we? Yeah, how do we manage to um, you know to denude them of, of their, uh, their their excitement and, and the mystery and and, all. Yeah. and 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 there's an attempt to do that too. I mean, I think that there's an encouragement to sort of you know give this history. And I'm always like, the history is really not you know. Come on now, let, let's talk about what's going on in the room or this. We, but we want the facts. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, these facts, where where will they take us? I mean, what what do they? What do these facts? Um, in the in the history, what do these facts actually reveal? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think your book uh, points right to that question. I have a very concrete question for you. Um, mm. This came about. Um, I was uh, as I was reading, you referred to a book, and it really stopped me because I've read a lot of Freud, and I uh, was like, wait. You refer to a book as interpreting dreams. We go from the interpretation of dreams. We go to on dreams. Uh, 
in the book, yeah. it's in italics. And so I turned to a good friend of mine who is like my local Freudophile. The doctor's his name is Stephen Reisner, and he's an analyst. And, and he said, I don't know. He said, what is it? And I said, well, I'm going to ask. Can you, can you help me? Uh, I, can, I can answer your question. <laughs> um, interpreting Dreams is the title of the new Penguin Freud translation of what was called The Interpretation of Dreams. And I um, deliberately wanted in the book to circulate together the standard edition and the new Penguin Freud translation. Wow. So that's why the book is referred to as The Interpretation of Dreams and Interpreting Dreams. Interpreting Dreams. dreams. I... Great, because, you know, we, we had this moment, I, I went out and met him for a drink the other night, and I said, look at this, look at this, what, I, I'm not sure, and we were Googling, and we were this. I think it's possible that, uh, because of copyright problems, yeah. interpreting dreams may be one of the pain, new pain forms that's not available in America. Yeah, we, we, we were just, we were just stumped and scratched, and I said, well, is this just... As, as you know, obviously this book is very well edited, and I thought, well, did they somehow did the editor just miss this? I mean, how no, no, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> but I'm glad, I'm glad that you uh, that you you cleared that that one up. Um, yeah, because that's a really a big undertaking that um, you're. Yeah. it's still ongoing, correct? I mean, the the work with the uh, uh, the penguin um, uh, standard edition. Um, you know, project, I guess, that mm. you have underway, yeah? That's a- it's finished, actually. It's finished. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, there are seven, it's not complete. It's not, I mean, it wasn't intended to be the complete Freud, mm-hmm. but it's 17 volumes. Okay. okay. Um, and they've all come out in England, and most of them, I think, come out in America. Okay, all right. Well, that's that's good to know. So, listen, we're, um, you know, 51 minutes, um, so we're going to have to bring things to a close. I just wanted to thank you uh, very much. It was a complete pleasure and, um, you know, and, and, and also, I, I guess, a bit of a thrill uh, to, to get to talk to you. Um, and, uh, you know, if you um, write again, which I'm sure you will, if you want to talk to us here um, at New Books and Psychoanalysis, we would love to have you. Um, and uh, um, to the listening audience, um, uh, next up will be Elizabeth Lundbeck on the Americanization of Narcissism um, on uh, uh, an interview that I'll be doing um, about the middle of August. So um, you can tune in to that um, at that point. But for now, um, Adam, I just want to say, uh, you know, it was a, a pleasure and thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.